Hey, welcome back to the BSF Lecture Talks on Matthew. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader from the San Francisco region. And today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 20 into chapter 21, as Jesus continues to tell us in more detail about the qualities of the heavenly man, the person who seeks after the heart of God, and not merely the benefits or rewards. We'll discover that Jesus teaches us it's not import so important that we know what heaven will be like in all of its details as much as knowing the kind of worshipers and followers who will be there, who will make up the attitude and spiritual mindset of the people residing in heaven under worship and under the sovereignty and rulership of God. In other words, the place doesn't make the person. The heaven doesn't make the person more heavenly. It's the person of God and his followers who love God that make heaven what it is. It's a radically different view of the kingdom of God than what many religions and this world kind of have this uh, tendency to think about spiritual things, which obviously is in error. And we're going to be addressing that today. A few announcements before I begin. Very important announcement is that this coming week, the week of March 5th, so including the Saturday through Tuesday, the 8th, we will be taking a spring break. So none of our groups will be meeting, but there may be a few of you that are meeting to catch up. So please ask your group leader about whether you will be meeting or not. But on the whole, BSF nationally is taking a spring break for one week. And then secondly, please be aware that we are taking tithes and offerings. Our giving to BSF headquarters is radically down this year due to COVID and being in isolation. And so the giving has actually fallen down to zero. And so we just want to be able to be gracious to the ministry that is teaching and leading us into the worship and study of God's word. So if you want to give, please go ahead to the international site. And whatever San Francisco region you might be with, satellite or otherwise, please use the designation 1232. That's our code for San Francisco region. That number is 1232. 1232. If you forget that, you can also look for First Baptist Church San Francisco. That's what we've called the San Francisco Larger BSF region. That's all of our classes within the peninsula, through the city, and some of you in the Marin County area. So look for First Baptist Church in San Francisco or 1232 to uh, facilitate your giving. And we do need more group leaders. The BSF group is uh, always dynamic and transforming. And if you have been uh, experiencing a, a kind of a, a poke and a kind of a heart stirring going on to get more involved in BSF, please reach out to me at Bible study in sf at gmail.com and we want to get you started. And also if there are other church groups that maybe you'd like to start using the BSF group study with, please let us know and we'll get you uh, get going on that. All right, so let's begin. So a landowner goes out in this parable that starts off our study uh, in Matthew, and he goes and hires workers to work his vineyard for a denarius, right? And he went in separate times, the third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, and even the eleventh hour to hire even more workers. And it was time to pay each person their wages. He started with the last hired, giving them the same denarius as those who worked all day long. So those early workers started to grumble about this. But the landowner said, 
don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So Jesus concludes that the last will be first and the first will be last. We notice many things here to take home as important lessons for us. God calls us, God calls us so that we can be trained up in the body of Christ. The kingdom of God is learning by doing. It's not growth by theory, growth by learning catechisms or doctrines, although those are important, but they must be applied. Those principles must be put into practice of tending the field, so to speak, living life out there in the world by God's principles. The church grows by succession. And what I mean by that is the earlier workers who came into the field learn and then pass on their learning by training others who are coming on later when other new workers are hired. What does this mean? What is the ramification of this? It means we must take the work of passing on the baton of our faith very seriously to the next generation and to those around us who are even younger believers mentoring and helping those younger believers in our midst to learn more, take on more responsibilities in the church, and to serve with joy into the body of Christ. It also means if you're older and you know some things, you need to be taking people under your wings, nurturing them to do as much or more than you knew how to do in the body of Christ, in the ministry, in the work of the church. That is the stewardship in the field of Christ harvest. But then how do we make sense of the seemingly unequal wages? Well, let us first look at the verse for this week. It says, And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 27, 28. We are taking our example and our cue from the life of Jesus, as he was obedient to the Father in all that he did. The big idea, so as we move into the content for this chapter, is the hierarchy of the humble in the kingdom of heaven. That's the big idea, to understand the hierarchy of the humble in the kingdom of God. And the aim, or what God is, the Bible is causing us to learn, is that the kingdom of God exalts those who loves to imitate the servant heart of Jesus. And we have two divisions here. First one taken from Matthew 19.30 all the way through 20, chapter 20, 28, is laboring under God's purposes. Laboring under God's purposes. And then the second division, Matthew 20.29 to the end of 21, verse 17, is worshiping under God's purposes. So laboring and then worshiping are the two divisions. So let me continue. So we come to a place where the st we understand that the stewardship is very vital when we're working in Christ's harvest, then how do we make sense of the seemingly unequal wages? Is it fair that those who worked only an hour got paid as much as those who, who came 11 hours ago and put in a full day's work? It doesn't seem to make sense for us because we're living in a scheme according to the model of the world. What if that model becomes centered around the one who employs the one who is the perfect master, so that we get something more precious than the pay. See, the world system says the pay is everything. Well, let me explain by a story that I had. I had a student fresh out of college who had two job options, one which gave him a high salary, but the job was steady, uninteresting, and mostly about monitoring machines. It was going to be quite boring. 
The other job offer he got was a lower pay at a startup, but because the company was small, it allowed for greater flexibility and range of perspectives and responsibilities so that he really got his hands dirty and learned all kinds of different um, uh, operations and functions of the firm. And, and that was going to help him grow, making, allow him making uh, significant decisions about the direction of the company and to practice some degree of leadership that he needed to kind of be more developed in. So young people are so motivated by the money, they don't see that there are other more important factors in growth that they might miss out on if they just follow the money. I used to tell my students there are two important things that you should consider when looking for a job at that stage early out of school. One, don't look at the salary, but look for a company that's going to be making heavy investments in your growth by training you, developing you, sending you on conferences, and extending and developing your knowledge set and your skill set. And two, go to a company where you're going to be surrounded by other smarter people than you so that the smart and intelligent ways, the successful habits will spill over into your life. Don't follow the money. Well, when we think about this parable and what it has to tell us, it is a privilege to be working under a master who is working for the benefit of the people. Keep your eyes on the master who has so much more to give you than just money for labor, who is this master is our Lord Jesus. Do you remember the Karate Kid? If you watched that movie back in the 80s, there was Mr. Miyagi who took in a street kid who was being beat up all the time by other street kids. Mr. Miyagi was a truly great teacher. And uh, he was one that was interested in the, uh, the boy that he took under his wing. His name is Daniel. Daniel's transformation from being the messy, undisciplined uh, kid growing up on the street to a far greater calling that he himself could not see. And that is us in Jesus. Jesus sees a far greater purpose and transformation that he wants to work in you ultimately than what you can see for yourself. He's deeply interested in the person you become. And he, he's always been. He has always been. So this then is about a master-centric view of labor. Remember again, Mr. Miyagi kept having his young pupil do all those chores around his house, fixing things and painting things. And the young Daniel thought that he was being taken advantage of, and he complained, and, and he almost gave up. But later he realized he was being physically trained to rework his body to accommodate critical karate moves. Those, that training was for the critical karate moves that his body was not ready to be able to make because he wasn't exercising. There are many times in our living into our faith when we get tired and things don't make sense and wonder, what's all of this leading up to? God shows us what the training was for at critical times of our lives when all at once we realize why we had been tested, trained, and tried, and reworked for those key moments of critical leadership that God has called us to in our lives. It's spiritual boot camp. You know, nothing gets done by just hanging out. Spiritual boot camp is about applying yourself consistently and faithfully into spiritual training. And if we give up early and throw in the towel because it just doesn't make sense in our own minds, you will forfeit something that's greater than your own mind. 
we will forfeit a lot more than you can imagine. Galatians 6, 9 says, We will reap in due season if we faint not. Do we love having spent the time being with the, uh, such a great a shepherd of our souls as Jesus is? Being in his service? Where the burdens don't seem like burdens because we are with the one who loves us so much. He perfects us. He develops us better than any coach that we can ever find or hope to have. Or do we count it a burden to be working under him as someone working in bondage, under coercion and compulsion, rather than a deep personal need? It should be in our Christian lives that it's all about what the Father wants for us. It's about what pleases him. If anyone thinks Christianity is about self, the self-discovery process, self-improvement, it all has to do with me, Another part of this cult of the self in our culture that we have so rampant right now, well, those people are seriously mistaken about Christianity. Christianity is none of that. Our faith is about following in total submission to God the Father through Jesus His Son, the Son who has shown us what it's like to practice complete submission and obedience to God the Father. So let me ask you some application questions how do you get under a leader in the ministries you're involved in or at the church to learn and gain competence in God's work in the life of the kingdom? Do you even have any uh, areas in which you are submitting yourself? Do you see God's work as a nuisance or a burden or as an important part of your essential spiritual training? If you want to be blessed, you have to learn how to get under God's yoke and serve and follow the leader under the tutelage of the faithful others he's already working with. You have to make room for that, and the Lord will throw his cloak over you to propel you in directions that you didn't even expect. Remember Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, where it says, For I know the plans and thoughts I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. So the matter of what you're called to and who called you is far more significant than when you were called and how much you were able to accomplish. That's because he's the shepherd and the only one who can give you life purpose and eternal goals. He's the one that gives us our future. He's the only one who can oversee your development and growth into that work through the Holy Spirit. But we always want an explanation, right? What we see here is that the workers start to grumble and demand full-blown explanations and reasons. They're asking, what's going on here? How come there's this unfair pay? Well, this comes from the lack of personal training, not knowing why the coach says we should be doing what we're doing. What God is looking for is unquestioning obedience. That's what, you know, athletes who have been, who are going through training learn by undergoing rigorous training that's very uncomfortable for what, that, what they're normally uh, wanting to do. They don't gripe and grumble their way to training fighting the coach each step of the way because they don't understand what's going on. If you have full confidence in your coach, you're willing to have unquestioning obedience. And that's the, our faith with God. You can trust his training. That is the obedience that Jesus showed us we can do because he himself exercised obedience through ministry and unto death on the cross. If you ever wanted to be something for God, you have to be able to say, not my will, but thy will be done. By contrast, our view of work in this world is very self-driven. 
It's all about the employee. It's about what I have to offer. What do I have to get ahead? And what do I do to compete and distinguish myself? Even at the cost of climbing over other people to get noticed and get ahead, we operate on a view of work that is very worker-centric or laborer-centric. It is entirely the worker's responsibility and attributes that any form of compensation is dis determined. But Jesus challenges us in a larger view of the kingdom, one in which it is not worker-centric, but ruler and shepherd-centric, thereby recognizing his deep intention for us to be transformed, to be reworked, which we call sanctification, to be more like him. And that can only happen when we accept his sovereignty and his authority in our lives. He seeks to call and to purposely utilize under that authority. His aim is to drive purpose into people without consideration of how many workers the field needs because in his great cosmos, in the great heavens, there is an endless amount of cultivating God's creation that we can explore and engage into. We don't know what that's going to look like, but we know that in God, there is going to be much glorification taking place as we work into his purposes and in his will. As you can see in this parable, he wants to put people to work in his kingdom. And he keeps going out to making more and more inv invitations and that is a radical view of heaven and our involvement in God's work. It is not about our contribution that counts, but the goodness of God. That's what takes center stage here. The goodness of God keeps going out to make invitations to all of those who are willing to accept. It is not the justice of union, unionized workers demanding fairness and pay that govern salaries, but it is the centrality of the goodness, grace, and generosity of God that everybody gets what he's promised for his people. And then some, right? Overflowing and abundant. David says, my cup overflows. We get even more than we had ever hoped or expected. And this is a teaching which stands in strong contrast to the ambition the disciples are starting to harbor as Jesus is teaching them this parable because the disciples are now starting to eye and check each other out in their group of 12. Of course, there were many others, some say as many as 500 who consistently followed Jesus all the way through, but there were the inner circle of 12 and they're starting to jockey for power, for status, for greatness, which is antithetical to the motivations that those who are members of the kingdom of Christ should have. Because he called us all to humble ourselves. Like the disciples, we also find that we have so been soundly brought into the world's view of things, the world's value system. It's very jarring to our conventional notions, making it very hard to respond to what Jesus is telling us here. So principle one, for Christ followers, the calling of God is prerequisite for purposeful labor. For Christ followers, the calling of God is prerequisite for purposeful labor because God sets the standard and he is the sole motivator for any work or objective we work toward, not other people and not institutions. Has your heart ever been consumed by getting ahead so much that it changed your attitude and thinking about promotions at work, getting recognized, or maybe this ambition or this attitude that you have, you have to win at everything, playing competitive sports, or a simple board game gets very personal, or you have to win every argument so that you can always be in the right. Do you find you hate losing more than anything or find yourself keeping score on worldly things to feel better about who you are? Once we set out into the world with others with our personal standard and motivation set based on the world, 
our competitive spirit will squelch every good, perfect thing that God has in mind for us as people of the kingdom. It will make other people our foes instead of our friends and co-collaborators. When we are consumed with this thought, people are no longer ministry. They cannot be. They are our competitors. We are consumed then by the motivation to win and get ahead of others at all cost. And we will find it affects our relationships, not only with our friends, but also with our family, and most importantly, with God, who has given us a holy stewardship mission in all of our activities in life. God is sovereign, and has, He has complete authority in who He calls, when He calls, how He calls, and what He wants to give. It is not based on our human perceptions, our human criteria, or assessments of capability or competence, talent, worthiness, or eligibility as you might do looking for a job. It doesn't work that way. God qualifies the people He calls. God qualifies them. And He gives them the training, and He gives each one a purpose, a unique purpose to plow into His work. And then He gives liberally to all because He is generous. The gift of recompense or the salary or the compensation is one which is not based on us and what we put into it. It is entirely based on Him and what He put into us by bringing us in. This is the picture of God's grace. It's marvelous and amazing grace that is so radically different from man's view. And it's jarring. It, it's, it, it strikes against and it causes a lot of friction for us to be thinking along these ways because we're not used to this heavenly way. It strikes at the ingrained worldly ways we have come to accept as an everyday part of life. It doesn't matter on our side what we did. It matters entirely on God's side what He does. And that's an important principle. It always matters what God is doing and not what we bring into it. So believers do not predicate their lives on the status, rewards, and recognitions of this world and what the world can give because we know God values a heart that seeks to humble itself and to imitate his own heart. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man judges all things, but he himself is not subject to any man or anyone's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And may the mind of Christ be the ultimate standard by which we live into heavenly priorities. It is counter to the world's values which is first in, first rewarded, puts those that the highest credentials, qualifications, and standards of access and promotion first. This cannot be taken in isolation, but must be viewed entirely in Christ's teaching on the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, such as John, who lived a very ascetic life, John the Baptist, unencumbered by thoughts of income, wardrobe, social status, influence, or where his meals were going to come. He was he was, by worldly standards, a minimalist because he wanted to devote his entire attentions, the scope of everything he talked about, entirely to the Master's mission for him. We have a limited bandwidth oftentimes, and we can only hold so much on our minds or on our plates. So we have to make the concerted decision that our life will be centered around the things of God. And it has to take place 
you know, in little or small, big ways in which you can, and God has called you to do so. So maybe today, I hope that you will take that in seriously into heart. Moving on, um, why might Jesus have repeated the coming reality of his death and resurrection to his disciples? Well, now this contrasts greatly with all this jockeying that the uh, for for uh, status and for place in God's kingdom. And Jesus wanted to remind them that this is far greater than the puny things that they're looking to. What a contrast. We see that the disciples are jockeying for status and power when Jesus is teaching about giving up one's status and power and rights and privileges in order to save us from our sins. A little while ago, Jesus told them in chapter 16, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? When Jesus is, what Jesus is teaching them about the counter-cultural kingdom values, he was directing them to see values that he lived by every single day as an outflow of his very heart and nature. He said the very nature of the kingdom was lived in this way. It reminds some of us, uh, some of my American students actually, who tried living in Japan at one time, they, be, they came um, to appreciate and love the Japanese culture, but it was really hard for them to live and to kind of grow in their mind and intellect about why the Japanese did the things that they did. Um, even as they love those, the culture and the design and the d design sensibilities, um, they only love the superficial things. But when they tried to understand it more deeply, they were so rooted in their American way of seeing and doing things, uh, they weren't able to live into and fully appreciate what the Japanese culture had to offer. If we don't, in the same way, love God's righteous design and the culture of His kingdom, then it will be difficult for us to imbibe in the deeper riches of his heart. And we will always stand out as strangers to the kingdom of God. How did Jesus respond to the jockeying going on? Well, I would think that he would have been disappointed. And isn't it further disappointing that even uh, a mother of a couple of the disciples, James and John, comes asking Jesus for a favor? And she says she would like to see her son sit on the right and left of Jesus in the kingdom. And he responds, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they say, we can. Well, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. God has everything prepared. We don't need a jockey. We don't need to compete for places and positions in the kingdom. We, he, he is working the perfect work prepared for each one of us to live into. And all of it would be magnificent beyond your wildest dreams because we will be with the Father. There are certain events and governance, governance issues of the kingdom of God that the Father has decided already in his eternal will and that's not something that can be transmuted in time and space in the ways that we think things can be allocated or changed or, you know, rewarded by uh, promoting someone. God's already determined. God's decisions are beyond time and space, and they will be enforced. He calls us instead not to look at those positions, but to live into the reality of the witness of Christ in our salvation. 
so that even the unbelieving who are weighed down by the world system may turn to the light and be saved by our witness. So how do the disciples respond? Well, of course, they're going to be indignant. They're going to be somewhat annoyed because their hearts are not in the right place. Their hearts are not pure because none of them aspired to be at the bottom, as Jesus said, to be the servant of all. So up until this point, you can imagine the disciples are kind of heady with their ability to uh, do ministry, to heal the sick and to restore the lame and blind. And they have all this power and this huge following and they've been experiencing and exercising a bit of uh, notoriety under Jesus' ministry, much of which has never been experienced by men before. And you know what power does to us. Power can corrupt and without proper guidance, it can lead us to corruption and abuse in the heart of sinful man. Jesus makes it very clear by two very certain groundings for where the disciples needed to look for understanding for what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. One, the testimony of his own life. And two, through the consistent teaching from the very beginning that those wanting to be the greatest must be a slave and servant of all. Even John the Baptist's life was born out of by his complete devotion to God's mission. He was, th he was called, therefore, the greatest born of women. He said, you know, the Gentiles practice authority over them and, and lord it over those who are below them. But he says, not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Verse 27, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as they're making uh, their way into Jerusalem, Jesus shows his concern now to make way for even the outcast and the marginal. How many of us on our own birthdays, um, I would wonder, um, would think of giving other people gifts instead of receiving gifts? Have you thought about that um, in a way as to be living into what Jesus is teaching us about privileged positions, honors, and acclamations on a day in which you expect other people to celebrate you? I wonder uh, what, it would look, what birthdays would look like if we celebrated the others in our lives who have blessed us and made us as rich in the kingdom of heaven as we are by their dedication and devotion and the ways that in which they've taught us and helped us along. Maybe gifts, celebrating our uh, the influence of Sunday school teachers, uh, our, our other teachers, our wife, our parents. Um, so we see here Jesus is walking in a procession that is elevating him and celebrating him a crowd of people in total awe of his teaching and his power. But Jesus doesn't make it about that. He makes it about bringing those blind outcast, in bringing the outcast into the fold so that they can also enjoy in the celebration of God's salvation to see and perhaps also bear with their own seeing eyes the gift of Christ's atonement for us on the cross. I wonder if they might have also followed Jesus and witnessed with their newfound sight the great gift that they have been benefactors of by Christ's submission of his life on the cross. No matter who you are and what condition you might be battling with, Jesus is able to make all who seek him see into heavenly realities that people with eyes who, um, even people with eyes and perfect vision would reject 
and dismiss out of hand. Christ offers the ability to see into his kingdom for all who are willing to submit to him. So what um, truths about Jesus are revealed in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem? Well, the people rightly declared, Hosanna to the son of David. And that's an important ascription that people um, call him the son of David because we remember in 2 Samuel 7, God has promised specifically the coming of the Messiah, that he would inherit David's throne. God says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. My love would never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And this is the very son of David that the crowd started declaring with their hosannas. He is not only the prophet from Nazareth, who they also uh, ascribe, uh, give him that ascription in verse 11, but he is also the king, right? So he is prophet, he is king, and now he's also the highest priest who teaches us the beauty of God's heart in scripture and communicates God's will. As the highest priest, the most perfect priest, who perfectly atones for our sins and makes a way for worshiping God, he goes out and to the temple and cleans out the filthy businesses and dealings and bargainings that are uh, desecrating and defiling the process of approaching God with the heart of worship and humility. And as he does in our hearts today, he doesn't want us to have the defiling and desecrating clutter in our hearts that defile our ability to worship God. So in all in this passage, in this short um, uh, area in which we are reading this, Christ is fulfilling the role of the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is the promised son of David to whom God had promised his throne, which would be established from everlasting to everlasting, and he would have no end. Psalms 145.13 says, The kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. Your kingdom will never end, and you will reign forever. So remember, uh, if there's anything about this scene that surprises you, remember that in John 2, we hear that the first instance of Jesus, um, also where Jesus went out to the temple and drove out the money changers and dealers in the temple using whip cords. Uh, and this happened also in the Jewish Passover. He was saying, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? It is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus has far greater concern and zeal for how people come to worship in the congregation of the church than most of us do. We are willing to accommodate those things, but Jesus would not. Would not this be a call for us to remember that preparation of our hearts into worship is a very serious thing? And it's important that we create for others in our local congregation a clean and sanctified places of worship in which they can enter unobstructed, unpolluted in their approach to God and worshiping with his people. He is filled with the zeal of the Lord for the holiness and righteousness of the temple and of worship. The whole practice of worship in relationship with God was being defiled here and the reigning religious leaders accepted and condoned it. I hope that we would not condone something like that because principle two um, focuses is on an important part of this worship, that purity of heart is a prerequisite for worship. 
It's so hard to hard to get the heart to be pure, let alone to have the environment be pure as well. But we don't want to have any of those obstructions as we come before Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Purity among God's people are prerequisite for an authentic and deepening worship. That's principle two. I remember when I was a child, my mother, uh, she used to prepare uh, us for uh, church and then communicate to us how special worship was by having us wash specially uh, carefully, combing our hairs and dressing in our best, Sunday best. And we were given crisp new dollar bills uh, to teach us that we should always offer God the very best of who we were. And I still remember that today. And it causes me to think of the thorough house cleaning we need to personally be doing as we live into being a people of God in the body of the church, to cast down all of our idols, to cast down all of our wheeling and dealing and the ways in which we accommodate worldly uh, idols and uh, adultery and have our minds be focused on how we can worship God in an unadulterated way so that I can cry out to God, create a life in me, Lord, a place in my heart where worship can reign, where people can see Christ uh, through my life so profoundly and clearly that it can um, also make them to stop and take pause and to repent. So some application questions to think about is, um, where do you see worship and following Jesus? Um, something that's about you and less about total surrender and cleaving to Jesus. You remember that Christmas song, In the bleak mid midwinter, frosty winds may blow. Earth stood cold as iron and water like a stone. It's very much the bleakness that we live in when the world rejects God. That is the condition of the harsh and bleak world Jesus came into for us. What have I to give him? And the stanza says, the only appropriate thing to give him is my heart. And so as we go forth into the world, may we uh, first give of ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, um, the world looks for a genuine and authentic answer to the emptiness that is before the world that is cold as iron and water is like a stone and that everybody's parched and dry and they don't know where to search for, for true living uh, water and true life that can only be found in you. Lord, may you, Lord, uh, be magnified in us and glorified in us profoundly and may we not get in the way in which your glory can shine and lead men and women to Christ and his salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.